today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports regarding the latest research into potential new treatments and insights into the causes of mental illness. Along the way, trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Well, I appreciate your tuning into this podcast again and uh, hope that this past Sunday you had a nice Mother's Day or your mother did or your wife and uh, that we are moving along into the month of May. This is the May 11th, 2016 edition of Psychiatry Today. And <clears throat> unfortunately, my lead story, while it is, I think, the most important mental health-related issue in the news from past weeks, not good news. Um, service member suicides continue to increase in the military, but mental health care is still not getting the attention it needs. Uh, the Pentagon is perpetuating stigmas that hang over treatment, according to the latest study. Even as troop suicides remain at record levels, the Pentagon has failed to persuade service members to seek counseling without fears that they'll damage their careers, a stinging government review concluded. And this fear of Damaging their careers is a major reason why our service members don't seek treatment for their mental health problems. And of course, we know from other studies, depression and PTSD and suicide are major issues in our service members, uh, active duty and veterans alike. Despite six major Pentagon or independent studies, from 2007 through 2014 that urged action to end the persistent stigma linked to mental health counseling, little has changed, analysts said in the April report by the Government Accountability Office, the GAO. One key problem is that many Defense Department policies covering job assignments and security clearances still discriminate against anyone who receives mental health care. Now, I have to agree with that assertion with the report, and I can attest to that personally. Anytime I've ever treated someone who had any security clearance for whatever reason, uh, be they military themselves or uh, be they someone who worked on military planes, for example, uh, the fact that they see me uh, for mental health problems means that they have to f uh, have a form filled out by me. And uh, basically, it's a very brief form. It kind of goes like this. It's two questions. And the first question is, does uh, your patient have 
any mental health problems that would make them a security risk for the United States in terms of any military, especially nuclear information. And if I say yes to that question, then there's the second question, okay, what do I think the risks would be? If I say no to that first question, which I have each and every time, then the second question is moot, and that's that, and the person continues to get their clearance without any problems. Uh, but I don't know if there's any other type of medical care that civilians who work on military programs or military themselves uh, have to have their uh, health care provider uh, fill out and file with the Department of Defense. Uh, so that's telling you right there that they do discriminate against mental health treatment. And there's um, a legitimate reason why someone in the service could uh, be concerned about their security clearance if they go get help. The potential for inconsistent decision-making by commanders and leaders in suspending clearances or removing individuals from sensitive positions may further impede the department's efforts to address stigma, according to the report. The Pentagon largely agreed with all the conclusions and recommendations. Air Force Major Benjamin Sackerson acknowledged that the problems described in the report can cause service members to pay for their own counseling out of their pocket, not to use their uh, military health insurance to keep it, quote, off the books, unquote. The Department of Defense has been actively engaged in addressing the problems of stigma and other barriers to care, Sackerson said. The most recent health survey of U.S. troops from 2011 shows that 37% of active duty service members, nearly 600,000, felt that seeking mental health care through the military would probably or definitely hurt their careers. Results from a follow-up survey later that year, while not made public yet by the Pentagon, shows little change in that percentage. According to Brenda Farrell, the GAO analyst overseeing the review, she said they haven't been able to get their arms around it. I would venture to say that if we looked at the results of that same survey, say in 2010 or 1995, uh, it would be much higher than 37%. So as bad as that still is, uh, I'm sure it's positive that it's come down from what it used to be. Suicides across the military rose precipitously from 2005 to 2009 and have remained at record numbers since then, according to Pentagon data. The most recent suicide rate provided by the Pentagon for 2014 is 19.9 suicides per 100,000 in the military. The national civilian rate for that year was 12.93 per 100,000, markedly less. And that was according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. The number of post-traumatic stress disorder and depression diagnoses, along with traumatic brain injuries, 
have soared in Iraq and Afghanistan. GAO analysts uh, conducted their report. Uh, they, they did 23 focus group interviews from June of 2015 through April of 2016 with service members who had complained about being called malingerers for seeking counseling. At one military installation, the mental health clinic is accessed by a single elevator dubbed the elevator of shame, so anyone visiting is readily identified. That is unacceptable. Among other findings, in 2014, a RAND study identified 203 Pentagon policies that may contribute to stigma and need to be reviewed, but nothing has been done about them, in part because they are not a big enough priority for the Pentagon. Despite a 2012 directory from the Secretary of Defense that seeking mental health care should not adversely impact security clearances, this practice continues. Analysts found that people who see a therapist are at least temporarily losing their access to classified information, probably until they get that form filled out by their health care provider that I told you about before. Department of Defense civilians who deploy overseas are not asked about whether stigma is a problem, so it is impossible to gauge whether they are also avoiding mental health care because of it. Well, again, it's, uh, it's very disturbing and discouraging that um, these mental health issues still occur in our military. Uh, there's still a culture that it's weakness, shame, degrade, degradation, uh, loss of career uh, prestige, loss of self-esteem, and this has to stop. So I sincerely hope the Pentagon will do more to address these issues of stigma so that more service members can feel comfortable seeking the mental health care that they need. It should not hurt their career. It should not lower their esteem in the eyes of their peers or those among uh, under their command or those that uh, they report to. And um, <clears throat> with the rates of suicide being much higher than in the civilian population and the Pentagon and expressing willingness to address this problem, uh, part of that has to be making it easier and less stigmatizing for service members to get mental health care. Next on Psychiatry Today, uh, another study showing that depression uh, is a real illness and it also interacts with other illnesses that people suffer from and go to the doctor for and the emergency room and the hospital for every single day uh, to counteract the mistaken notion, the stigma that depression is not a real illness, that it's all in someone's head, and then they should just spontaneously try to recover from it. Uh, over the years on Psychiatry Today, I've brought you many articles talking about the links between depression and heart disease and other cardiovascular diseases, but 
Now here's a study showing us that depression worsens the symptoms of COPD, which stands for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, which used to be called emphysema. Debilitating symptoms from COPD can worsen in patients who also experience depression. So the point of this study is that in patients who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, those who also have depression have worse symptoms than those who do not have depression. And we'll get into the findings of the study and how it was conducted when we come back from our first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, talking about all the latest mental health news. And if you or someone close to you suffers from COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, please pay close attention to this item because if you or that person suffers from depression as well, their symptoms of COPD are going to be worse. A new study published in the journal CHEST demonstrates a link between worsening of COPD in patients and depression. Patients who had pre-existing depression or developed depression after COPD diagnosis were more likely to experience heightened 
COPD symptoms, such as increased breathlessness, reduced exercise tolerance, and hopelessness. Patients with the obstructive lung condition and depression also performed worse than COPD patients without depression in exercise tests, showing a pronounced loss in performance in their daily activities. The results have implications for healthcare practitioners who could potentially screen for mental health problems periodically in those patients with a history of difficulty coping at home, poor adherence to therapy, or experience of a recent bereavement in a bid to reduce COPD-related hospital readmission. They found a previously unknown link between the brain and COPD. Researchers stated that mental health can have repercussions elsewhere in the body, in this case, worsening the negative effects of COPD and poor prognosis and health outcomes. Essentially, you can treat the brain to treat the lungs, and this is something health practitioners should be aware of when working with COPD patients. It creates a strong argument for vigorous screening of mental health problems in patients who are admitted in the short term for exacerbations of COPD, admitted to the hospital, they mean, managing mental health problems associated with COPD should be an important part of the management plan for the short term as well as the discharge planning with longer term follow-up. The research looked at almost 1,600 patients over a three-year period. It found that more than half did not experience any depressive symptoms. Almost a quarter of COPD patients were classified as permanently depressed, while 14% developed a case for depression during the three-year follow-up. COPD patients were asked to complete a six-minute walking test and quality-of-life scale. Those with depression performed worse in exercise tolerance and impaired quality of life than COPD patients without depression. Researchers concluded that depression in COPD is chronic and inadequately treated. Now, I want to get back to something they mentioned earlier in the article. They mentioned the management plan for COPD And if you're not familiar with the concept of the management plan, there are management plans that primary care and other specialty physicians are supposed to follow for the treatment of chronic illnesses, such as COPD, diabetes, hypertension, and so on. But there isn't such a management plan for dealing with depression in primary care practices. And for better or for worse, the vast majority of cases of depression are treated by primary care physicians, not by psychiatrists. And in my opinion, this has to change, not the fact that primary care physicians are treating depression, but the fact that there isn't a management plan that they're following the same way they follow one for high blood pressure or diabetes or COPD or what have you. Uh, Depression is every much uh, a physical illness 
as are any of those other problems and absolutely uh, requires a management plan to stick with follow-up and treatment, to evaluate the results of treatment, to prevent relapse and recurrences. Um, and, and I'm mentioning this just like I've mentioned in the past on the show that uh, depression needs to be something that is screened for on a routine basis, just like primary care physicians screen for cardiovascular disease risk by checking cholesterol levels and checking electrocardiograms. And they check for diabetes risk by looking at <clears throat> blood sugar levels, fasting blood sugar levels, and they check glycosylated hemoglobin or hemoglobin A1C if someone does have elevated blood sugar. Uh, it is long since past the time when depression is considered uh, a chronic disease that needs to be screened for and treated and followed up on. Next up on psychiatry today, uh, for the past few years, there's been a huge, huge buzz about ketamine uh, ever since it was discovered that treatment with ketamine can relieve depression within hours, literally hours, not days, not weeks or months like it takes with antidepressant medications, but literally hours. Now, I, for one, was not one of the people to jump on this bandwagon because of what we already know about ketamine. Uh, ketamine's only legitimate medical use at the moment is as um, an anesthetic, but it is also widely abused as a so-called club drug. Its nickname is Special K. It is a hallucinogen, and just like other hallucinogens, such as um, LSD or marijuana or hashish, it can, in the wrong cases and in the wrong situations, lead to complications such as hallucinations and psychosis. So I thought to myself, well, you know, while everyone is so enthusiastic about using this stuff, wait a minute. Let's just hold on a second. Instead of just blindly, willy-nilly administering ketamine to long-suffering depression patients, without regard to what the consequences may be, let's instead study what this possible mechanism could be. Why is ketamine helpful with depression? And then see if something else can do the job without those potential side effects and risks. That would be the more sensible approach. But unfortunately, that hasn't happened. Ketamine clinics have sprung up all over the country. And anyone who wants to can find one of these doctors who do this and get an intravenous infusion of ketamine to see if it will help their depression. Uh, if it will, you'll find out within hours. Uh, but it isn't just like you go, you have your intravenous, and you leave and go home. You have to stay and be monitored very closely. Vital signs have to be checked. You have to see if you uh, hopefully don't have a psychotic reaction to it. Uh, so, again, despite the buzz and the enthusiasm, in my opinion, this is a treatment that is not ready for prime time. However, I'm happy to report there is finally some good news, um, whereas up until now, the research into why ketamine works for depression 
and what else we have in the way of medications or what else could possibly be developed knowing the mechanism uh, that might help for depression. Well, that none of that research has panned out. Um, finally, scientists may be on to something as to what about ketamine is helpful for depression, and uh, it may point the way to developing other treatments that are safer. And refreshingly, this did not come from any pharmaceutical company. This came from the National Institutes of Health and the National Institute of Mental Health, a uh, subsidiary of the National Institute of Health. So this is our own government scientists. This is science for science's sake, not for profit. All right, so here's the information they learned. A chemical byproduct or metabolite created as the body breaks down ketamine is likely what holds the secret to its rapid antidepressant action. Uh, and this was discovered by National Institutes of Health Scientists and their grantees. This metabolite singularly reversed depression-like behaviors in mice without triggering any of the anesthetic, dissociative, or addictive side effects associated with ketamine. This discovery fundamentally changes our understanding of how this rapid antidepressant mechanism works and holds promise for development of more robust and safer treatments, said Carlos Zarate. Dr. Zarate is uh, the co-author of the study, um, and he is at National Institutes of Mental Health and a pioneer in the research of using ketamine to treat depression. He said, by using a team approach, researchers were able to reverse engineer ketamine's workings from the clinic to the lab to pinpoint what makes it so unique. <clears throat> now, these findings were reported on May the 4th in the journal Nature. And the other, the collaborative team effort that Dr. Zarati mentioned included researchers from the National Institutes of Health National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences and the National Institute on Aging and the University of North Carolina. <clears throat> now that we know that ketamine's antidepressant actions in mice are due to a metabolite of the drug, not ketamine itself, the next steps are to confirm that it works similarly in humans and determine if it can lead to improved therapeutics for patients. Clinical trials have shown that ketamine can lift depression in hours or even minutes much faster than the most commonly used antidepressant medications now available, which often require weeks to take effect. Further, the antidepressant effects of a single dose can last for a week or longer. However, despite legitimate medical uses, ketamine also has dissociative, euphoric, and addictive properties, making it a potential drug of abuse and limiting its usefulness as a depression medication. In hopes of finding leads to a more practical treatment, the research team sought to pinpoint the exact mechanism 
by which ketamine relieves depression. And we'll get into that after we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news right now. We're talking about ketamine, a drug that created a lot of buzz for its extremely rapid treatment of severe depression, minutes or hours. Um, and we're looking at some government and university researchers who think they figured out why it works, and this will hopefully point the way to developing safer versions of it to treat depression because it has very severe side effects. Ketamine belongs to a class of drugs that block cellular receptors for glutamate. Glutamate is the brain's chief excitatory chemical messenger. Excitatory doesn't mean making you excited. Excitatory refers to that it activates brain cells as opposed to deactivate, which would be inhibitory. Until now, the prevailing view was that ketamine produced its antidepressant effects by blocking N-methyl-D-aspartic acid, or M sorry, NMDA glutamate receptors. However, when scientists tried other NMDA receptor blockers, they failed to, pr- to reproduce ketamine's robust and sustained antidepressant effects. 
So clearly, it's got to be more than ketamine's action on glutamate receptors, especially the NMDA glutamate receptor. So researchers explored the effects of ketamine on antidepressant responsive behaviors in mice. Ketamine is made up of two different chemical forms that are mirror images of each other, denoted as S and R ketamine. Investigators found that while the S ketamine is more potent at blocking NMDA receptors, it is less effective in reducing depression-like behaviors than the R ketamine is. So that explains why when they tried other NMDA receptor blockers, they didn't help with depression. We actually have uh, something that blocks NMDA receptors already on the market. It's called Namenda and Namenda XR. It's used as an adjunctive treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, not usually alone by itself, but usually in combination with one of the anticholinesterase inhibitors, the only drugs that until now that have been used to treat Alzheimer's disease, um, Exelon, Razadine, and of course the biggest and best known one, Aricept. Getting back to the ketamine depression study, the researchers then looked at the effects of the metabolites created as the body breaks down either S or R versions of ketamine. And they also knew that ketamine's antidepressant effects are greater in female mice as opposed to male mice. Researchers identified a key metabolite with a very long chemical name uh, and lots of numbers and letters in front of it, hydroxynorketamine, we'll call it HNK for short, and they were able to show that this metabolite is pharmacologically active. A pharmacologically active metabolite means that when the body breaks down a drug into a specific metabolite, that metabolite itself is also a drug. We have a very common example of this in everyday practice for more than 20 years, uh, more than almost 25 years. Um, Prozac, is uh, its chemical name is fluoxetine, and it is an antidepressant, as you know. But the body breaks it down into norfluoxetine, which is an active metabolite. And norfluoxetine is what has a lot of the antidepressant and anti-anxiety effect of Prozac. Researchers discovered that this hydroxynorketamine, or HNK, metabolite, had levels three times higher in female mice, who again uh, respond better to ketamine than male mice in terms of relief from depression, hinting that it might be what's responsible for the gender difference in the antidepressant-like effect. To find out, the researchers chemically blocked the metabolism of ketamine, thus preventing the formation of the HNK metabolite, and this uh, predictably blocked the drug's antidepressant-like effects. So it looks like they've narrowed it down that it's this hydroxynorketamine metabolite that is responsible for how ketamine helps with depression. Like ketamine, HNK also has two forms that mirror each other, and by testing both forms, 
they found that one form of HNK had antidepressant-like effects similar to the parent drug ketamine lasting for at least three days in mice. Notably, unlike ketamine, the compound does not inhibit NMDA receptors. And that's okay because we figured out that the S-ketamine form, which mostly inhibits those receptors, doesn't work for depression. So what does it do? Well, instead, the HNK activates, possibly indirectly, another type of glutamate receptor. And uh, I'll spare you the long chemical name of this one. The abbreviation is AMPA. <clears throat> All right, well, if you're really that interested, I'll tell you anyway. It's alpha-amino-3-hydroxy-5-methyl-4-isoxazole-propionic acid. There you go. I know there are some physicians and scientists who listen, so I didn't want to disappoint you. AMPA for short. So that is where the HNK works, uh, blocking the AMPA glutamate receptor instead of the NMDA glutamate receptor. Um, blocking the AMPA glutamate receptor um, from being acted on by HNK prevented the antidepressant-like effects of HNK. And um, experiments confirmed that the rapid antidepressant-like effects require activation. Oh, sorry, I may have confused things before. So it's not blockade of AMPA receptors that results in the antidepressant action. It's activation of it. So when you block the receptors, they can't be activated. Therefore, you don't get the antidepressant action. So it's activation of AMPA glutamate receptors that HNK uh, accomplishes, and that is assumed to be the antidepressant mechanism behind ketamine. Ketamine also has effects in mice that mimic its dissociative euphoric effects in humans and underlie its abuse and addictive potential. However, these effects were not observed with the HNK. Um, and it didn't cha cause changes in physical activity, sensory processing, and coordination in mice that occur with the parent drug, ketamine. In an experimental situation where mice were able to self-administer medication, they willingly did so with ketamine, but not with the HNK metabolite, indicating that it is not addictive. Seeing if mice will self-administer a drug is one way scientists judge whether something is likely to be addictive or not. For example, if you let mice or rats self-administer cocaine, they'll gladly willingly do so until they keel over and drop dead. Working in collaboration with the NIH and academic researchers, these chemists played a critical role in isolating the specific metabolite of ketamine responsible for fighting depression. Unraveling the mechanism mediating ketamine's antidepressant activity is an important step in the process of drug development. New approaches are critical for the treatment of depression, especially for older adults and for patients who do not respond to current medications. Pending confirmation in humans, this line of studies exemplifies the power of mouse translational experiments for teasing out brain mechanisms that hold promise for future treatment breakthroughs. 
The researchers are now following up on their discovery with safety and toxicity studies of the metabolite as part of a drug development plan in advance of an NIMH clinical trial in humans for the treatment of depression. So to recap, ketamine, which has all this buzz about rapid treatment for depression, but a lot of very serious side effect concerns, turns out there's two forms of it. Only one form seems to help with depression, but it's not the R-ketamine itself. It's the metabolite of R-ketamine, HNK, and there are in fact two forms of HNK, and one of those activates the AMPA glutamate receptor, and that is the mechanism they think so far behind treating depression. Um, so while this is a, a much more hopeful finding, uh, because it holds out the promise of being not just effective, but so much safer than ketamine itself, it isn't going to be possible to run out and get an, an HNK infusion anytime soon. Uh, they have to work on this to confirm that it works in humans, not only mice. Um, again, it's a mammalian brain with analogous comparable structures and pathways and using the same chemical transmitters. So the likelihood is good, but we have they have to know for sure. And they also have to check on the safety issues. So it's going to take a long time. But this is very, very promising. And it would be a huge change, a revolution in the treatment of depression. Uh, there are no treatments for depression that work on the glutamate pathway at this point. Um, and this drug would exclusively work on the glutamate receptors in the brain. It would not go anywhere near the serotonin or the norepinephrine or the dopamine receptors where all the current antidepressant drugs work. So this clearly would be a sea change in antidepressant treatment and one sorely needed because basically what we've been dealing with um, since the 50s have been um, reuptake pump inhibitors for receptors for these various neurotransmitters uh, since the late 80s concentrating mostly on serotonin and then since the mid-90s norepinephrine as well as serotonin. But uh, these drugs have, have uh, consequences too. With long-term use, they can cause weight gain and syndrome of apathy, um, and while taking them, they can make you sluggish and interfere with short-term memory and ruin your sex life. Uh, so new treatments are needed, and it is very uh, gratifying that these nonprofit researchers came up with this, so hopefully it will lead to drug development sometime soon. I will be sure to keep you apprised of those developments. In the meantime, Forget about those ketamine infusions. Um, <clears throat> the side effects, I think, are not worth the short-term benefit. We'll have more mental health-related news after this next commercial break. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative 
of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast, depression symptoms that steadily increase in later life predict higher dementia risk. According to a recent study, uh, perhaps one of the conclusions could be that making sure depression is adequately diagnosed and treated could possibly prevent dementia later in life. Well, let's see what researchers found. Depression symptoms that steadily increase in older adults are more strongly linked to dementia than any other types of depression and may indicate the early stages of the disease. According to this first ever long-term study, to examine the link between dementia and the course of depression. It was published in the journal The Lancet Psychiatry. Symptoms of depression are common in people with dementia, but previous studies have often looked at single episodes of depression, failing to take into account how depression develops over time. The course of depression varies greatly between individuals. Some might experience depressive symptoms only transiently, followed by full remission. Others might have remitting and relapsing depression, and some might be chronically depressed. Different courses of depression may reflect different underlying causes and might be linked to different risks of dementia. The study included 3,325 adults aged 55 and older who all had symptoms of depression, but no symptoms of dementia at the start of the study. The data was gathered from the Rotterdam study, a population-based cohort study of various diseases in the Netherlands, which allowed the authors to track depressive symptoms over 11 years and the risk of dementia for a subsequent 10 years. In the Netherlands, they keep scrupulously detailed health records from birth to death. So if you want to do medical research to study a population, it's a great place to do that. Using the Center for Epidemiology Depression Scale, the CESD, and the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale for Depression, the HADSD, the authors identified five different trajectories of depressive symptoms, low depression symptoms, which they found in the majority, 2,441 participants, initially high symptoms that decreased, which they found in 369 subjects, 
low starting scores for depression that increased then remitted, for which they found 170 subjects, initially, initially low symptoms that increased, which they found in 255 subjects, and constantly high symptoms, which they only found in 90 subjects. Of the 3,325 participants, 434 developed dementia, including 348 cases of Alzheimer's disease. Among the group of low symptoms of depression, 10% developed dementia. The researchers used this as the benchmark against which to compare other trajectories of depression. The study did not compare the risk of dementia following depression with the risk of dementia for adults in the general population without depression. Only the group whose symptoms of depression increased over time was at an increased risk of dementia. 22% of people in this group developed dementia. The risk was particularly pronounced after the first three years. Individuals with remitting symptoms of depression were not at an increased risk of dementia compared to individuals with low depressive symptoms. The authors say that this suggests that having severe symptoms of depression at one point in time does not necessarily have any lasting influence on the risk of dementia. The authors say their findings support the hypothesis that increasing symptoms of depression in older age could potentially represent an early stage of dementia. They also say that the findings support previous suggestions that dementia and some forms of depression may be symptoms of a common cause. They say that at the molecular levels, the biological mechanisms of depression and neurodegenerative diseases overlap considerably, including the loss of ability to create new brain cells, increased brain cell death, and immune system dysregulation. Depressive symptoms that gradually increase over time appear to better predict dementia later in life than other trajectories of depressive symptoms, such as high depression and remitting depression. There are a number of potential explanations, including that depression and dementia may both be symptoms of a common underlying cause, or that increasing depressive symptoms are on the starting end of a dementia continuum in older adults. More research is needed to examine this association and to investigate the potential to use ongoing assessments of depressive symptoms to identify older adults at increased risk of dementia. Several factors can contribute to the development of both depression and dementia. The questions are if and how the presence of depression modifies the risk for dementia. The study provides an answer to the first question. Depression, especially steadily increasing depressive symptoms, seems to increase the risk for dementia, or I'll say perhaps it indicates the onset of 
dementia. However, the question of how the presence of depressive symptoms modifies the risk of dementia still remains. More studies of depression trajectories over a long period with inclusion of biological measures are necessary to understand the link between depression and dementia, in particular, the underlying mechanisms. A focus on lifestyle factors, such as physical activity and social networks, and biological risk factors, such as vascular disease, neuroinflammation, high concentrations of stress hormones, and neuropathological changes, might bring new treatment and prevention strategies a step closer. But for now, I think the important take-home message is actually that if an elderly person, or maybe not so elderly, maybe middle-aged person, is showing late-in-life onset of increasing or worsening symptoms of depression, then that may be a harbinger of development of dementia, and therefore that should be thoroughly investigated and treated as aggressively as possible because we know that even though the treatments for dementia are quite limited, the earlier you institute them, the more they work. Next on Psychiatry Today, let's turn our attention to the issue of video game addiction. Uh, some researchers have found that this is linked to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD. Young and single men are at risk of being addicted to video games. The addiction indicates an escape from ADHD and other psychiatric disorders. Video game addiction is more prevalent among younger men and among those not being in a current relationship than others. The study was done with more than 20,000 participants who answered questions related to video game addiction, and the study is published in the journal Psychology of Addictive Behaviors from the American Psychological Association. The study showed that video game addiction appears to be associated with ADHD, OCD, or obsessive compulsive disorder, and depression. Excessively engaging in gaming may function as an escape mechanism for or coping with underlying psychiatric disorders in an attempt to alleviate unpleasant feelings and to calm restless bodies. This large study shows some clear tendencies as to which people develop addictive use of social media. The study implies that younger with some of these characteristics could be targeted regarding preventing development of an unhealthy gaming pattern. Younger men, uh, that should say. <clears throat> the study also showed that addiction related to video games and computer activities shows the sex differences. Men seem generally more likely to become addicted to online gaming, gambling, and cyber pornography, while women are more likely to become addicted to social media, texting, and online shopping. Hmm. They aren't doing too much to correct gender stereotypes, are they? 
So here are seven warning signs of video game addiction. These are the seven criteria the study used to identify it, where gaming experiences lasting six months are scored on a scale from never to very often on these seven parameters. You think about playing a game all day long. You spend increasing amounts of time on games. You play games to forget about real life. Others have unsuccessfully tried to reduce your game use. You feel bad when you are unable to play. You have fights with others, for example, family and friends, over your time spent on games. You neglect other important activities, for example, school, work, sports, to play games. And if you score high on at least four of these seven items, it may suggest that you are addicted to video gaming associated with impaired health, work, school, and or social relations. Most people have a relaxed relationship to video games and fairly good control, however. I think it's useful that the study has come up with this criteria because until now, I don't think researchers could um, agree uh, that video game was a true addictive disorder, and if so, what were the criteria? So it helps to have that articulated now. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to the information that I enjoyed bringing to you, and I hope that until we get together again, next time will be in two weeks, folks. I hope you have wonderful, stress-free days, but if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.